0: Welcome to the Alhambra Source podcast, the show that brings the diverse sound, stories and news of Alhambra and the San Gabriel Valley to life. I'm your host Erica Mu and we are kicking off our very first episode made possible by the Tau Center for Journalism at Columbia University with a live recording right here at the American Hungarian Baptist Church. So, welcome to our audience who's with us tonight. <laughs> We're recording here in the city of Alhambra, one of the most multi ethnic and multicultural places in the country. It's a city where immigrant stories begin and unfold. And some of those stories, the ones we hear less often, are the stories of the people who are young and undocumented. We call them dreamers, people who were brought to the United States as children without documentation. Since 2012, DACA, or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, granted nearly 800,000 of these individuals renewable two-year visas. The current Trump administration, however, has made it a priority to end the program. The stories of Dreamers are human, diverse, and raw. And today we're going to explore one of those stories. In this episode, we talk with one of the most courageous and talented Dreamers in Los Angeles, Yunwen Bonaparte. She's a freelance photojournalist and editor for the online magazine Narratively. In her work as an activist and journalist, she's given voice to others like herself. and welcome to the Alhambra Source podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I, I want to start with your immigration story. Can you share what age you were when you arrived in the United States and what that journey was like?
1: I came here with uh, my mom and two brothers when I was 12 years old. Uh, my brother was, my middle brother was um, I think ten, and my youngest brother was one, and uh, we migrated from um from Michoacan, Mexico. It was just a situation where where we had to migrate um in order to survive. It wasn't much of a choice. My my father was already here, but um he couldn't really provide for us for us to be living back in Mexico and him be li- living here, and um he couldn't really get a job in Mexico because. You know he he has uh, trade skills, but it's just not enough for us to eat. You know there were times where we had to um, eat. Um, <laughs> I, how do you say it? Um, old tortillas like they get hard, and you know he you had to like warm it up. So we eat them tostadas <laughs> and beans. And you know my mom would have a garden in the backyard um, just because there was times that there was it wasn't enough for us to have um, any meals so it was a necessity to come here Um, so you know at the age of 12 we uh, came to Tijuana and um, my one of my uncles like set us up with a. a, I I want to call it Coyote but I don't think I don't know what's like the English word for it smuggler Um, so we were in Tijuana for a couple of days, waiting for other people to come by from, you know, the old parts of Mexico, and like just kinda gathering around so that he can transport us to the U.S. And, um, you know, eventually I found myself in a truck with uh, a bunch of people that were, you know, it's one of those trucks that you can put the seats in the back down. Um, They put us like sardines. You know, it was like around 50 people just Someone laying on top of others, and my, me and my brothers on top, and crossing the desert. Uh, you know, It seemed to me very fast. <laughs> I don't know how fast we were going. So we ended up in San Isidro. Uh, we are there for a couple of days uh, until we were waiting for another truck to bring us to L.A. And uh, at some point, you know, we are in the middle of the night, waiting for the truck. It was cold, and my one-year-old brother, he couldn't stop crying. Um it, being in the road, um, he, he just continued to cry and we got stopped by immigration and we, you know, got deported. It <laughs> got stopped and we, we ended up going to the um, immigration facility uh, next to Tijuana. And uh, we spent the night there. Uh, and then the next morning they just told us, you know, just walked through the hall and they told us where we were at um, and then we were in Tijuana again. So we tried again, <laughs> and the same day, my, my uncle set us up with another smuggler. This time it was a family of ladies, um, just like old women and children. And um, I crossed first, um, and then my family followed like throughout the week. And you know, we came here, we got here uh, in March 13, 2002. Uh, we got delivered to my dad um, in the corner, I don't know what's the street, but it's like right next to Disneyland, and I remember because I, I was looking at, at like on the wall, and it was um, like the castle, like the top of it, you know, you can see it at night, and I asked them, like, what's that? And they're like, oh, that's Disneyland, and I was like, oh, <laughs> very traumatic <laughs> at that point, so i never been to Disneyland after that, well, I've never been inside at all, so, Anyway, yeah, we came here and ended up living with my dad and my two brothers.
0: Yeah. So you're you're 12 years old when you make this journey. How aware were you of the risks? What were your what was your mom telling you?
1: Yeah, I mean, we knew what was what was happening. Um, I think at the time we didn't really realize how uh, dangerous it could be. There were times where when we were waiting in between, you know, getting carried from one place to another, we were in a hotel room with, you know, 20 men and maybe another lady that was also waiting to get crossed. And um, and we were the only kids, and you know, just crossing with my mom. Um, I, my mom says that at the time we felt like it was an adventure. We never really used those words, but, you know, it was kind of like, okay, we're doing this. So there's really nothing else to to think about it, just, just do what they ask you to do. I realized that it was it could have been really bad years later when you know I was older and you, know, you keep thinking about it, you keep having dreams about it. And then you you know, trying to process why am I having these dreams? Like why is this so stressful to think about these days? And now I realize how bad it could have been, but you know, at the time it was just
0: you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> So at the age of twelve, you thought we're going on this grand adventure, and only in your adulthood were you experiencing some of the or acknowledging some of the stress of
1: right. that it's, journey. Yeah, it was the anxiety to think that something could have happened—not just you know to me, but you know my one year brother crossing the border. You know what could have happened to him? You know, it's just mostly thinking about the family. I I always known that I um, I was undocumented, but you know once you start getting to college and thinking what am I gonna do for a living, how am I gonna do this? You know that's when the anxieties came about and you know, start thinking about the past and how we got to this point.
0: I want to pick up on that thread in just a second, but um, I I want you to take us to two thousand twelve, and and can you describe what your life was like, you know, some of your routines and your hopes and your plans before DACA, and how those changed afterwards.
1: Yeah, so um, in 2012, well actually in 2008 when I grad, 2007 when I graduated from high school, um, I knew I couldn't really go to a university. I, I did apply, I did get into Cal State LA, Cal State Long Beach, and Cal State Northridge and um, I knew I wanted to do something with communications. I always liked storytelling. You know, I just kind of came from the family, from my grandpa that he always used to tell stories, and I just kind of wanted to do that, but I didn't know how I was going to get there. I just thought, I'm going to enroll to community college and, you know, see where that takes me. So I um, started going to Mountsack, SAC, just paying out of pocket, uh, and um, I discovered photography. <laughs> So I just kind of fell in love with photography, and I thought that was, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, at the time, I mean, that was, was in Maine, 10, 11, 12. I was four years into college. Um, I was working at photo studio, um, doing like wedding photography and <laughs> anything that would come around. And um, I just thought I, sh- you know, I wanted to continue until I finished my astrology degree. And I didn't really thought much of it, like just. I'm gonna continue this and see where it takes me. And it's always been the case. I mean, for me and my family, my, me and my brothers, I see the same thing with my, my younger brothers. We just think we're gonna do this, and wherever it takes you, I mean, we do have a goal at the end to at least pay a rent, but, you know, just being hopeful that it will take us to a place where we want to be. So before DACA, that's what it was. Working at Photo Studio, working to get my social degree, I didn't really, thought much of, you know, that I wanted to be a photojournalist, until after uh, DACA.
0: Because, because your documentation status limited what you felt like you could pursue. Yeah, in a
1: way, because, um, you know, for every, whenever you have a career, you always, well, I always thought that you would need Social Security to have a job, that you know take it to the next level. I never really thought about photojournalism that way. I just knew that it existed. I knew that I could tell stories and I knew that it, it seemed kind of fascinating you know on the side but I knew that I couldn't go get a job at a, uh, at a newspaper or anywhere really. And I guess it also in my thought process I thought if I get a skill like photography I can do it anywhere. I can do anything with it. It doesn't matter if I have a social career or not I'm just gonna go ahead and do that. That's why I didn't really thought of what what's gonna be my career. I just was thinking more of uh what can I do where I don't need to put in my social security number anywhere and it still be okay.
0: So, prior to DACA, your choices about school, your choices about work, were all impacted by status, shaped by it. Were there other areas of your life where you felt like the defining principle is whether or not I have documentation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like we don't really think about it directly every day, but it affects your daily life, you know? Where am I going to work because I don't have a driver's license and I have to drive illegally? Uh, Where am I going to go, you know? What city? I mean, for the longest time, I wouldn't go to Orange County because I thought, well, I heard that you know, if the police stopped you and you don't have a driver's license, they turned you into turned you into ICE. Everything, you know, everything that you come across that it was ordinary, I like we were thought to think twice about it without actively like going into the details of why I need to think twice about this decision or not. So I mean, for school, I went to Malibu because it was pretty close. For work, I, you know, I did a trade because I, I know that if anything happens, I can go on the ground and not, you know, be um, uh, as affected for my job. For living, you know, you stay in the cities that are mostly um, immigrant-friendly or that uh, have a big population of, you know, your kind. So, it everything that you think about, you know, that you wouldn't think twice, we have to think about it, you know, and, and just kind of make, inform your decisions through that. And I feel like it's not just me, like my brothers as well.
0: So I want to, I want to pick back on that um, thread that you had mentioned earlier about mental health. It seems like this is—I mean—it obviously is such a common um, underpinning of the stories of dreamers, and, and I think, in fact, and there was an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine about how rescinding DACA would be a, have major repercussions for public mental health. You know, you're describing this 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 extra brain that you have to or you have had to carry around with you, double thinking all of your decisions. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about you know what, what that emotional experience is like to go about your daily life with this extra burden and stress?
1: I think you just kind of learn to live with it. You learn to live with your trauma. And I know it sounds really dramatic, but there's one thing to be an immigrant and there's another thing to be an immigrant and being undocumented and just having to live with the extra baggage of that. A lot of people don't, you know, most of undocumented immigrants, they're too busy working, making a living that, you know, for them to stop and think, oh, you know, I have these mental issues or something to, that needs to be resolved. And I see it on my uncles, you know, they, they've been working all their lives. They never really stopped and thought, oh, it's not okay to feel this way. And I feel like I'm being, uh, I I've been very privileged to stop and actually go to school and actually not you know work myself nine to five every day, for me to realize that it is some you know it has brought some mental issue problems for myself, and um and seeing it into like my family members that are also in the same situation or other people that I met that are also in the same situation. Um, it just becomes common, you know, you, you don't think about it. You just keep doing, doing, doing because you want to. Why? Are you, what are you here for, right? Like, do you want to do what you're supposed to be here for. So I think um, there's a lot to be said about the community and the stigma of, um, you know, where those anxiety comes, come from and whether you can um, have the time and money to fix it or address it. Um, say, uh, when you say
0: it. Can you, can you tell me more about what you mean by
1: that? Like, if they can address it, a lot of times, what's the life of an immigrant? How, what's the, <laughs> the circle of life, right, of a person that immigrates to this country? And I mean, now I'm analyzing it even more because of, you know, my uncle's situation. You know, he's been in the hospital for a couple of weeks, but he literally went to work on a Friday and was in the hospital on a Saturday. And he literally worked himself until his death, and he's, you know, he's dying as an undocumented immigrant. People come to this country, they come here to work, you know, they bring their children, the children have to go through the school process as best as they can without the, the help of the parents because the parents are too busy working. Where, where's the time for them to stop and think, okay, well, maybe I should go to a psychologist or maybe I should send my kids to a therapist because this is not normal. And and if they do have the time, you know, there's mon- the resource, uh, you know, they have the re- the money resources to to attend to those needs, you know. For I know for my family, I know it's common for the you know community um, to not think about mental health as something that needs to be addressed. You know, if you're sick, you're probably gonna cure it at home. You don't even go to the doctor uh, if it's a physical thing that you can fix yourself. So it, that's even less with uh, mental health. You know, you don't really think that it needs to be addressed. If anything, somebody's going to pray for you, but that's it. (laughs) You know, so it just kind of comes back to that um, mentality that you don't have the time and money, so why should you stress about it? You just have to keep working through it and, and just making a living. That's why they don't address it. That's why it's not something that we talk about, but it exists
0: you you were mentioning that you you have this you have had this privilege of being a little bit younger so you're not maybe in the same cycle of survival as maybe your parents generation and that you've you've had some time to reflect on on this the trauma of the immigration journey as well as the way that your life has been shaped and in some ways limited because of your status, what have you worked through? It seems like you have coped and evolved <laughs> in a in a beautiful way.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I've gone to a therapist. <laughs> I actually addressed it, and I think I'm very self-observant to think about these things. And I mean, there's a reason why I'm here, and I feel like. I need to work through those things so I can resolve that, you know. Um, There's a lot of things that that go within, you know, people's personal traumas that make you get to a point where you want to be better because you're here, right? So (laughs) why live through those traumas and keep, you know, keep it to yourself and repeat that cycle that, you know, of mental health that is not resolved. You know, that's not something that I want to do and I feel like because I I did have the opportunity to go to college and to meet other people and know and actually um point out that that's an issue because before going to school I didn't know that was an issue, you know getting outside of my my close community system and actually learning from other people and, and noticing that it's not normal to feel this way, I feel like um that's why I need to fix it and cope my own way, you know? So, um, I don't know if that answered the
0: question. (laughs) Well, I want to get back to to the question about how your life has changed after DACA.
1: Yeah. Your life and and
0: the lives of your family members, people close to you.
1: Right. um, So, I remember um, the day that DACA was announced, and I think everybody remembers the day that DACA was announced. Where were you? Where was I? Um, I was in a car with my Boss at the time at, from the um, the photo studio and we were driving and the announcement came in the radio and I started crying <laughs> um, and then he just looked at me he's like what does that mean and I said that means that I quit <laughs> that means that I quit and that I want to go to school and get, you know I don't know what I'm going to do but get an education and you know see what I can, this is going to take me because um the details of it weren't there yet, but I knew that it was an opening for me to do something. Whatever else I wanted to do, just do something. So that was 2012. Um I grad well, I got my master's degree uh, from Mount SAC in 2013 and transferred to uh Castle Fullerton in 2014. And to just, you know, just keep running to see <laughs> what I can do in the, the two years interval. You know, every two years you have to renew it. And you, knowing that, um, you know, you don't know if it's going to be renewed the next two years. So fit in as much as you can from that. And same with my brother. I mean, he, he was working at a McDonald's at the time. Um, after that, he you know, started working in mechanics. And you know, now he's a technician at uh, Toyota. And same thing. I mean, it was like two different routes where he didn't go get an education. But he also used that privilege now to do what he wanted to do or as close as, you know, he could. After that, you know, I went to the university. I've been traveling. I, you know, I used as much as uh, my privilege as I could to better myself, I feel. You know, I, one year, went to Costa Rica, you know, <laughs> something like that, or going to, um, every year, going to different places because of um, uh, school trips or, you know, conventions and stuff, and taking advantage of that. I feel like That girl that grew up in that cardboard house wouldn't even imagine that she was one day going to end up in Costa Rica or uh, Washington, D.C. or, you know, anywhere that I I got to go to and just be grateful for that. So I think that was like a huge thing. And me showing that to my little brother, that was a huge deal because now I can tell my, my little brother, like, you know, there's much more to to this that you know to be undocumented you know you can do a lot of more stuff that we weren't taught by anybody else you know I didn't have any role models like I didn't even know how to go to college like I had to get a a friend to go and like literally take me by the hand and tell me hey this is admissions this is where you apply and do this so for me to be able to do all of the stuff that I got to do in the two-year intervals like that was a huge deal for me so (laughs) showing that to my family like My dad at the beginning, he was like, what do you want to be a photographer for? Are you going to go take pictures of quinceañeras and weddings? Like, you don't want to do that. And I'm like, no, dad, there's more. Like, I get to do all this other stuff. And he didn't understand it. But as he, you know, I would tell him, like, hey, I'm leaving to Washington next week. And I'm coming back, blah, blah, blah. So he wouldn't tell me. And he still wouldn't tell me, like, in front of me, like, I'm proud of you. But he will tell my aunts, like, hey, my daughter is traveling. And he will be proud of that, you know? So I feel like that changed the whole situation at home too, like now he wants to be a better person because of that. Now my little brother wants to go to UCLA because of that, or I mean, his own reasons, but because he knows now that he can and can do better than what our previous, you know, generations have done.
0: The idea of who you can be suddenly Mm -hmm. opened up a whole universe of possibilities. So, so DACA opened up the possibility of you being a photojournalist. You went to school for it, um, and you actually had an exhibit in last fall. Is that right? It's part of Pacific Standard Time, yeah. A citywide Latin American art exhibit. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that project and the people you met through it?
1: Right. So I after the election in two thousand sixteen. Well, we didn't see it coming, <laughs> you know. Regardless of, um, I mean, racism has always been obvious to us, as undocumented people. But um, we didn't really thought that it would get to this point. So, um, anyway, like me and my friends, like we just took it at heart. My fr- the friends that are undocumented, we took it at heart, and um, I honestly myself couldn't get out of house for you know, for a whole week. I couldn't get on my bed for, like, two days. Um, so, after that I got a message from my friend and said, well, why don't you do, you know, a project about this, you know, it's it's such a historical time that you should be documenting this. So, I got together with some friends and, um, I started doing interviews and doing portraits of them. And, eventually, a friend led to another friend and for a whole year I was doing different, um, profiles of people. And just kind of asking them, you know, what people, did you
0: people who are
1: undocumented, undocumented yeah. So, uh, yeah, different friends, of friends that were also on DACA. And the question was, you know, what did you do before DACA? Um, what did you plan to do with DACA? And if DACA gets taken away, what what are you gonna do? In a way, it was kind of like my therapy session uh, to kind of figure out where was I and where were they, and what kind of ideas I could get from them. To apply it to me, you know, and the way how they were coping with that. So I did a, a couple, um, I did like 15 profiles and, um, you know, people of diverse uh, backgrounds because at some point it kind of became obvious to me that there was more to the uh, dreamer, you know, narrative of um, having this person graduate from college and having an education and a career and, you know, being deserving of DACA because of that. And, you know, looking inwards into my household, you know, I, I thought, I'm like, well, if people think of DACA, they're gonna say, oh, well, she went to college, so she gets to, you know, keep DACA. But my brother, I mean, he didn't go to college and he's just, he needs DACA to do his job. So how much more deserving am I or him to, you know, who gets to decide who's more deserving of that of DACA um, in that situation? So it just kinda, I just kind of I was seeking out people that had different narratives that are usually not talked about. And within that, I, you know, I have people that have a PhD. Well, they're working for their PhD or they have a master's degree. And then you know, people that are just trying to work, trying to keep their job at McDonald's. You know, because they they need that. You know, they need to keep working. And then I have um, the youngest one, he's, um, I believe, 20. He just got out of high school. He's never worked with, well, he's never been without DACA outside of high school. And he's just trying to start living. So how do you tell these people that have different stories that, you know, they they can't do it anymore if DACA gets taken away? So that was kind of like the idea of the whole, you know, project. Which was exhibited. I think we exhibited eight different profiles, ranging on you know different narratives, to show people that there's more to a college graduate, deserving immigrant. You know that deserves to be here.
0: Can you can you share the stories of maybe one of those people who, maybe the most memorable story you came across in this series of profiles?
1: This kid. Um, this kid. He's 20 years old. His mother self-deported when she, he was 15. He ended up living with his grandparents, and having that trauma of not having your parents here because they decided to go back to Mexico because they couldn't keep living this life um, as an undocumented immigrant and um, being left behind. I think that's that's <laughs> so traumatic. You know how do you go on from that? So, um, throughout his high school years, he kind of didn't pay much attention to school anymore, and, um, he ended up being homeless for a couple weeks until his girlfriend found out about it and took him in, he, uh, the whole family took him in, and, um, now he, well, he graduated from high school, and, um, I think he's working as a, a car mechanic, and, um, and now he's thinking, well, I, I have DACA, so I I want to be a good citizen and you know I love the United States I wouldn't go back to Mexico because I don't remember anything from Mexico so why would I go back there and um, you know I want to be a a member of society and I mean he's so like nationalistic like you know this is I'm an American Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's insane that he has to go through that situation you know thinking what am I gonna do without having a family I mean 30 years old he has to have a family here he's working so hard to you know at least get himself through college so, like i feel like those are just some of the stories there's so many others that are you know they're hidden that are not told you know because they don't think that they deserve to be told you know half of these people i had to like convince them like hey please tell me like talk to me because this is important and they like this is like what do you mean this is important like this is just my life like yeah this is not normal (laughs) they're just so used to that um, they're seeing themselves as just part of this is how it is that they don't realize that it's it's a huge deal that they got to survive to this point and still be here and still be thriving and um, and they don't think that that's a big deal
0: So Yunyuan, I want to give our audience members a chance to ask you their questions. We have a few here that they've very graciously written down. So the first question is, how do you manage the risk of telling your story publicly?
1: I don't know. I think I'm, I, it might be dumb on my part (laughs) I don't know I think that I I just been I've been lucky to have a good support system of like a network support system in the journalism world that I feel that if anything were to happen to me that it wouldn't I wouldn't go silent Um, and I also been involved with a lot of nonprofits that I know that that what are my rights and what I can do to you know not be targeted as much you know um, I know it's a risk and I feel like I'm privileged enough to take it where others are not so I don't see why I should be quiet about it if I could in <laughs> there's a and I'm like that's not ice right <laughs> if ice comes in like I know that you know I have my papers you know at hand I have you know, I carry my my like a copy of my my DACA on to, you know with me at, at all times. I know I'm gonna renew my DACA when it comes time. I know that I have everything in order, and because of that, I feel like I'm okay. <laughs> but if anything were to happen, I have that support system that many others don't have, and also knowing what I what lawyer I need to call or what person I need to let know that this is happening. That's how I manage. So, it,
0: so first of all, you're it's, yes, you're very prepared, <laughs> but it, it's interesting that you have this philosophy that to be more visible is actually, and, and more vocal, is actually maybe even the greatest means of protection because you're so interwoven with other, publicly with other communities.
1: Right, yeah. I think like it's because I've like, seen it work. <laughs> if I wouldn't have seen it be- work before, and I like, I'm not the only one doing this. Like I know, and actually, I'm. I don't have that much recognition as other people that do it, and they're much more courageous because they do other crazy stuff, like getting arrested, which I wouldn't do. But I think that it's important to tell the stories and be outspoken about it if you do have that support system. And I know because throughout my college career and once I graduated, i always put it, you know, loud and clear, like, hey, I'm undocumented and I do this and my friend, (laughs) you know, so I, like, I I never try to keep it hidden. Those people that do support me, they know that about me and I know that I can count on them. So I feel like if I I wouldn't have that support system, I wouldn't be as spoken about it because you see what has happened to a lot of people that, that don't have that support system. They don't even get to get a lawyer, you know, or they don't even get to, to you know, like it's been cases where they get detained and a couple of hours later they're already in Mexico. So I feel like because I, I have that, then I should be unspoken about it.
0: What's also compelling is How both you and your friend who you interviewed for your project, who you had photographed, um, have this similar response, which is, DACA has given me all these opportunities, but I'm going to choose to use those opportunities to help others in the same position. It's it's almost like a way where you are empowered over that identity and, and, and your status. To be able to be connected into the community that way and give back.
1: Yeah, I feel like I, um, and I think this is something that we talked together about that. And why would we come back and and try to keep on being involved with that community? But um, I think it was the fact that we feel lucky that there were so many people that fought for us to be here, and there. I mean. The DACA movement didn't start it just now, it started in the early 2000s and um, and the people sacrificed so much for us to be here and to be given this opportunity that we wanted to, this is our way to give back. It's kind of like a karma thing, if you do good, good things will happen to you and um, I think that's why we wanted to be so involved in, in our own way because I know that there's really not much more I can do but tell the stories. Like I, I can't help anybody legally, but I can change the narrative or post it out there, you know, a Facebook post, you know, and, and say something about it. That's all I can do. So why not?
0: I think you might have you might have just answered this question, but we have <laughs> one um, from the audience from Jorge Alvarez. Um, so as, as a DACA recipient, what do you think is is the next step for you and others? Um, and do you plan to continue to live a regular life, or, and it sounds like your answer is already yes, but continue to open doors for other vulnerable immigrants and communities?
1: Right, so, um, I don't know what's the future of that, but I know that a lot of people that are fighting this, and community leaders, they're going to continue to fight it. The immigration talk at you know, the White House in, in D.C. I think it's already over. Nobody wants to talk about it anymore. But um, I know that community leaders are going to keep pushing, and I know this because DACA didn't happen just because DACA happened because of the pressure that the community leaders were putting on Obama. You know, DACA happened because Obama needed to get reelected, and people forget that people were behind that, pushing that through. It's going to continue to happen. You know, now more people know about DACA. I, I don't know if um, there was like some numbers like about how many people support DACA recipients to get um, a more permanent uh, legal status, and it was like a huge majority. So we're gonna continue to push, and um, I don't know where is where is that gonna go. But personally, I know that I'm I'm gonna be okay. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna renew my my DACA in August, and um, I have two more years to not worry about it, and then after those. Days are over. Then we'll figure out what's next. I mean, I live here undocumentedly for most of my life. I I only got DACA like five years ago, and I was able to manage to be here. So,
0: I want to end our conversation with um, this this final question from the audience. Um, And this question really is about taking the, the burden off of you and other people in your position and seeing what the rest of us can do. So, so the question is, for those of us who are US citizens or have legal documentation, what ways can we actively oppose or even disrupt the deportation and detention regime of ICE? I don't know if I
1: can answer that question, but I know that if people wanna get involved, there's so many ways that they can get involved. First of all, Elections, <laughs> they're coming, you know um, That's I feel like people Didn't used to realize how important those were <laughs> until now and uh, hopefully they're gonna continue to Participate on that because it matters like even the small elections the local cities that matters who, who you have there to make decisions also get involved with um or other organizations that are um, actively working to um, stop ICE from, you know, going into cities and other um, specific
0: organizations.
1: I'm trying to think of them. I follow on on social media, um, this group called DocuMedia, and they post a lot about like other organizations where uh, they go and um, like protest in front of uh, city halls and like, you know, different cities. Not just in L.A. specifically, there's different regions that people get organized to do that. But I I can't think of any right now. <laughs> but there's a lot that are working towards that. There's a lot of people that are pushing for different cities to to stop um, giving their people to eyes. Like through sanctuary cities and whatnot. So um, I feel like if you look for it online, there's not... I feel it's not that hard to find, but it could be hard to find, you know, those organizations. But um, yeah, just try to be involved because I think that it helps. You know, when you see people in um, outside of city halls and or in um, like city council meetings, like yelling out, you know, they, they they need to do something for their people, that works. You know. As and my my dad used to say like that's so silly like going through a process like what are you gonna do there you know like there's nothing for you to do like nobody's listening and I would tell him like well for me it was just like I just want to be with people that think the same way that I do but now we see that it does work you know people do pay attention and the power of um, um, having all these people gather around and, and support a community I think that that's that says a lot you know and I think that also like, that's one of the reasons why after the election, I didn't feel like so lost because I seen those people protesting and saying, you know, we support um, dreamers or undocumented people. Like I thought, uh, this is not like 2000s, you know, or before like these people already know who we are and they're gonna support us. And if you continue to do that in your local um, cities, I feel like that's so powerful, you know, just trying to get involved and, and support your people.
0: Well, we'll, we'll <laughs> list some of those resources. Yeah. And, and links in the podcast episode yeah. description. Okay. Well, Perfect. you know, this has been this has been such a pleasure, and thank you so much for sharing and for answering the questions of all of the audience members here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs>
1: I hope um, I should supply into things that you might not think about.
0: And that's it for this very first episode of the Alhambra Source podcast. Thank you again to Yunuen Bonaparte for joining us. You can learn more about her work and see her photos at ybonaparte.com. That's y b o n a p a r t e.com. This episode was produced and edited by Phoenix So and Dominic Tovar. Support comes from the Tau Center for Journalism at Columbia University. Special thanks to the American Hungarian Baptist Church for lending their space for this event. To our neighbors in Alhambra and the San Gabriel Valley, this podcast is for you. Listen and read more community stories about the issues affecting your life at alhambrasource.org. I'm Erica Moon. Thanks so much for listening.